Hello and welcome to Media Literate, a collaborative podcast where a group of alpha male intellectuals use reason and logic to discuss the himbofication of the manosphere. Yep, this week we're talking masculinity in media with our hosts Julia, Sebastian, and Colton. They'll tone down the testosterone and drop the debate format for a chill discussion on their experiences with masculinity on screen and popular depictions that have received backlash. Then they'll turn to future possibilities, including models for fatherhood and queer masculinities. Plus, a major Kevin update. There's been chatter amongst the cohort that Kevin has actually already seen Twilight and has been lying about it this whole time. Listen to find out more. We are not doing a BuzzFeed quiz. Um, oh. we, we will be using conversation as our, our standard. <laughs> um, because all the, all the quizzes I could find were like, oh, like rate your masculinity score. And I was like, I don't really want that. That's, and like all the quizzes are so stupid. Um, and they were like, do you drink your coffee black? Do you like NASCAR? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> Wait, so. Julia, you didn't want us to know if we were low T betas or not? Like, come on. I mean, now. I was like, maybe we'll be surprised, but um, then I decided against it because also gender is a construct, which I will be talking about. Um, welcome to this week's episode of Media Literate. My name is Julia Rose Camus. My pronouns are she, her. And this week we will be talking about the very large, daunting subject of on screen masculinity. Uh, both in its toxic and more positive delineations. Um, this is something I really like to talk about. This is something I really like to foster healthy discourse around. Um, I've done a lot of research into masculinity in the context of my film work. Um, and most often it comes up in like queer studies and queer theory versus feminist studies. Um, and so a lot of my research came out of that and also out of like the giant pit that is the internet. Um, which is full of modern kind of thought on masculinity. Um, so I'm really excited to be joined today um, by two wonderful podcast favorites on Media Literate, Colton and Sebastian. Hey everyone, it's me, Colton. I'm back. Um, name is Colton Elsey, pronouns uh, he, him. And uh, like Julia mentioned, we are here to talk about masculinity today. Um, Julia asked me a couple weeks ago to be on this podcast because uh, as an MA student, one of my many um, components of the growing list of interests that I have is the way that media represents the domestic space and family. So I'm here to help talk a little bit about that. Thanks for having me back. Hi, I'm uh, Sebastian Wurzschreiner, uh, pronouns he, him. And I also, in my, as Colton said, kind of growing list of research interests, um, am sort of inclined to focus a little bit on masculinity specifically my interests have to do with the um kind of paradoxical relationship between settler colonial masculinity and indigenous masculinity um but i'm also kind of new to this something we discussed pre-recording was that as an undergraduate i was like a big humanities nerd and i took and when you take a bunch of undergrad humanities classes gender comes up a lot but never really masculinity. I can only think of one class where we like actually talked about masculinity and masculinity as a construct and kind of the more theoretical aspects of that. So um, I'm new to this, but I'm also really excited to kind of get into today's conversation. 
Amazing. Well, I totally agree that it's often left out of a lot of uh, academic curricula and it's really important to talk about. So unlike a lot of our debate structured episodes, this is going to be more of an open forum for discussion because obviously this is a bit more of like a politicized topic and we want to just like get into it fully. Um, I mean, as much as you would probably love to hear me and Colton um, murder each other over Zoom in a, in a debate, this will not be that kind of episode. Um, so obviously the idea of masculinity and like the modern context is growing and changing a lot. Um, and our goal is to kind of get a better understanding of how media is responsible for changing that perception. And we're going to start by talking a little bit about um, our experiences with masculinity. So this is obviously something that affects everyone and that everyone has some amount of experience with. So I grew up in France and a lot of the content I grew up with on TV was like American exports. So for example, like we had a lot of cartoons translated into French. Um, and I really found the hyper-masculine characters who were like ultra-Americanized, very off-putting. Um, like I used to watch, there was Johnny Bravo on Cartoon Network. I don't know if you remember. Johnny, Johnny Bravo, what a, what a cartoon. <laughs> I know it was insane it was just so odd and I found him so strange but then there was like the Powerpuff Girls which had amazing depictions of masculinity right because like they have the dad figure who's so positive and like uplifting and then even like the antagonists like they have him who's like this like drag lobster um, character that's like completely androgynous and I used to love him um and then, you know, there's also always the question of like media that like aimed at children that's super gendered. And like, I feel like a lot of media aimed at like young girls is like super shit on and hated on in like common media. And like, so yeah. it, it just, yeah, it made that kind of inaccessible to me. Um, and like, you just, it's like a very weird gender dynamic. I don't know if you, either of you have that kind of experience. Well. I you talk about Johnny Bravo and one of the other ones we talked about before was like Freddie um and Velma and um now I'm spacing on on Daphne mm -hmm. from Scooby-Doo and like the Daddy. very and she, yeah like very specific you know tropes and types for uh masculine figures and female figures right and that I think it's so funny because when they did the the 2002 or whatever film right Daph uh Daphne has like the whole change she's no longer the damsel in distress Yes. Because like they were acknowledging that that had been a thing for so long. So she's literally played by Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, freaking love Buffy. <laughs> like, of <laughs> course she's a badass. Um, and they're also like, there's been so much like canon about like queering Velma and Daphne's relationship, which is like a tangent. Oh, yeah. But I know a lot of people were upset about that at the time um, and it got censored to hell. I Some version of that story exists out there somewhere. Definitely. There's, I mean, I would hope someone's that. made a version. Yeah. If the fanfic community will never let us down, that's for sure. The other kind of media I was exposed to was in the music industry. Like I was super drawn into like the really like androgynous like male figures. Um, when I was younger, there was this band in Europe that was pretty big called Tokyo Hotel. I don't know if it made it to America, but the lead singer was super androgynous and I was obsessed with him. And then like, obviously like David Bowie um, and Freddie Mercury. Can I just say, I, of, of all the stuff you talked about, David Bowie and Freddie Mercury were the first names where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that. Because I, particularly when it comes to the TV stuff, as a kid, I didn't really watch like any contemporary TV. And so all of the experience, like when I 
I was preparing for this, all the experiences I wrote down were related to to movies I saw. And like the experience I I didn't like realize at all when I was a little kid, but I was reflecting back on was that like growing up, I found that the characters I often empathized and identified with the most were female characters and often in either like franchises that were probably targeted towards young men or like a more kind of both men and women theoretically um obviously marketing is kind of bs and all over the place but Mm -hmm. i just thought that was interesting phenomenon in the sense that like i like for example back when i was into harry potter before that became you know the the jk rowling hellfire um i like the character I always like empathized with most was Hermione for some reason. At the time, I don't think I ever was super, or like in like Star Wars was, has always been super um, kind of pivotal for me. And like the characters I've tended to relate to most are like Leia or, or Rey or like Padme in, in even the prequels. And so I just was like an interesting phenomenon I was noting. I was like, ah, I wonder why that is. And then I was also realizing as I grew up a little bit um, and as I started particularly like when I was like later high school, early undergrad, and I started to actually be more critical about like gender depictions in media and like my own relationship with gender. I noticed I started to identify with characters who like I saw as like, I don't, I feel like positive role models is too reductive, but like I, characters who I felt were like, were defined by the fact that they, they treated other people well. And like, I, that was something like I, I like latched onto and in some ways I wanted to, be more like like the character that comes to mind most is is dale cooper from twin peaks which like i haven't seen twin peaks in a hot second and if i went back i feel like i would have a lot of different thoughts about it particularly the fact like he's an fbi agent but like at the time like i was like there was deeply kind of compelled by the fact that like he seemed like just this endless force of positive energy and like just wanted to be nice to everyone in his life and like i just feel like, like you don't see that that much uh when it comes particularly to like male identifying protagonists in in any form of media really which is kind of interesting totally i mean you're talking about star wars right i'm like anakin is supposed to be like the, what the role model for like young boys like in our generation and like anakin and is terrible <laughs> anakin murders children <laughs> turns into darth vader that's the kids are watching that going like taking notes okay okay yeah it's funny um, i in terms of star wars because like i how if kids like actually like took Anakin as inspiration, I don't know. And I certainly hope not. But one thing I did, because re- I mean, here's the thing, Star Wars in gender and Star Wars in politics in general is a like complicated, hot mess conversation. Like we don't have time to go there. But one thing I did notice um, when I was thinking back on it is that like, I wonder if part of why I, I latched onto that, despite all of its problems, was that Star Wars more so than like Indiana Jones or James Bond or like Clint Eastwood or forever, tends to eschew um, the sort of like hyper-masculine, like, you know, tough guy in charge kind of character uh, in the sense that like- Well, Han, Han Solo. But that th- I was saying yeah, that like, in the sense that like characters like Anakin or Han Solo, like Anakin explicitly is like the whole idea is that like the more he becomes like that, the more he becomes evil. And then like the whole point of Han Solo, but then it gets, gets missed on, which like, I think this, like I didn't necessarily think about as a kid, so I can't say it's a great example, but like, I was rewatching those recently and I was like, the whole thing with Han Solo is that he's faking it, that like it is a construct for him, that he's yeah. trying to be yeah. this kind of super ego maniac, like I'm in charge all the time, but it's a complete show. Like he's he's completely in over his head all the time. And so I, I thought that was kind of interesting because it is in that way, like it's, it is a little bit different than maybe other franchises that were available to, to me as a kid. 
Well, and if if um, Han Solo and Anakin were in a room, who would shoot first? Like that, like <laughs> it's an important question. <laughs> that is very true. And I mean, it's um, interesting when you compare it against like the genderless figures of like droids and like other species, like it's like, it really exacerbates that. But anyway, to bracket the Star Wars conversation, Colton, would you like to share some anecdotes? Yeah, so uh, a little bit of background in my experience with masculinity. So I actually grew up in a single parent household um, with my mother. My parents were divorced. And so I played a role of helping to like raise my siblings a lot. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I have a bunch of younger siblings and mom was great. Mom was always busy. And so I like had this weird growing up experience of trying to figure out like what a father figure typically does and what a mother figure typically does and kind of the mixing of those and then I loved movies as a kid and I always watched movies with my siblings and so then seeing depictions of like family and masculinity and the way those were on screens and thinking like that that's not what I'm experiencing <laughs> like right. that's different um, and so I thought that was so interesting because I started to come up with the concept like what a normal family is and starting to notice that. And I, I remember watching a lot of movies when I was a kid, Mrs. Doubtfire, Kramer versus Kramer, which are movies about family or domestic separation mm-hmm. and often ones that like pit the father in, in a not horrible light. Um, so those are just things that come to mind. Um, overall though, it got me interested in the way that media can affect ideology or social behavior. So like watching these things with my siblings what they were learning and taking away from it and how they would act because we were growing up in kind of a weird situation. And so a lot of the early masculinity that I saw were kind of looking at films like that films about families and the way that parents interacted and kind of got me thinking about it. So. And I mean, talk about gender performativity, like Mrs. Doubtfire is a right. master class in that kind of study. Like Mrs. Doubtfire comes up constantly in like discussions of like comedic drag um, mm-hmm. and just like anything about like feminized performances. Um, so I think that's super interesting, especially because it's often compared to like, what's that terrible movie? Oh yeah, Jack and Jill, like the Adam Sandler one where oh my oh. God, Adam Sandler does that horrible, horrible uh, like performance as a woman anyway. Um, I, was, I was thinking you were gonna say Tootsie, and I was like, "No, Tootsie, Tootsie's pretty good." No, <laughs> like, I was not. I would never criticize Tootsie. Um, good. <laughs> this is but, great because I was gonna try to, to transition us to like the theoretical conversation you wanted to have, but I love the fact that it's gonna be Adam Sandler <laughs> to theor- like theorizing Adam Sandler. That's the name of this podcast now. <laughs> that's media, baby. So, <laughs> without further ado, let's move into a little bit of theory background. So, I'm going to give a baby masterclass in um, some gender theory and some masculinity theory. Um, so, obviously, <laughs> obviously, this is kind of focused on a U.S. context, as we've like established with a lot of our references. Um, although, obviously, masculinity is like super expansive uh, beyond the U.S. context. But essentially, like, the first question is, what is masculinity, right? So we have, like, conventional masculinity, which is, like, a promotion of certain traits that are both physical and emotional. Like, a lot of them, like, kind of promote stoicism or, like, ruthlessness, protectiveness, ambition. Like, it's kind of posited that way. And then we have more, like, toxic masculine traits, which usually entail a rejection of things that are feminine to a point of, like, self-harm, And 
like I don't think like some things that don't people don't necessarily realize is that toxic masculinity has ramifications that are like so hugely social um like oh yeah they, right they affect like homophobia transphobia questions of consent and rape culture and even like things like gun control and like the environment are like somewhat affected by like toxic masculinity and then obviously you know like a lot of theorists like posit gender on a binary and you have people who are like this very conservative academic called Jordan Peterson who like firmly believes that like masculinity is order and like structure and femininity is like chaos. Um, so like there's a lot of theorizing that goes on kind of about this. Um, and when we talk about masculinity, like today, I'm going to want to like encourage us to view masculinity like outside of the male identifying context solely yeah. because obviously that's like important and a huge part of it but like the whole point of like where we're moving now and what's so great about it is that masculinity is becoming more inclusive more expansive and more positive overall so i'm going to quickly posit masculinity in the context of feminist history so not to do the whole spiel but first and second wave feminism very focused on women's issues in terms of like achieving bodily autonomy emancipation political representation um, and this kind of wave really centers male and like female like issues on like a, a total binary, like a, an othering of, of each other. Yeah. And then third and fourth wave feminism is totally different because it's like more focused on intersectionality. So questions of race come in, questions of nationality and queerness come in. Um, and it's super marked by also trans theory. And in this, there's like a new concept, a new conceptualization of masculinity is able to be constructed. And that's where a lot of our interesting theory is going to come up. Um, there's obviously like so much gatekeeping in masculinity studies. Like I've, I've done like a lot of it um, in like both film work and academic work. And like oftentimes like you'll find rhetoric that says that it's not necessarily like for everybody. And you'll say that it's like, it's just like very exclusive, but like with the rise of like our understanding um, of theory written by trans men, for example, we're able to construct this in a totally new way. Um, yeah. And especially right in this current fourth wave of feminism with the Me Too movement, um, there's like a reckoning and a call to action to like more directly confront masculinity, right? As as this this like more nebulous concept that can be altered. And lastly, small little tidbit on masculinity and media theory, which is why we're here today. Masculinity uh, media is like a whole field, and uh, early constructions of masculinity are born in feminist discourse, uh, especially surrounding women in media. So what happens a lot, right, is you have um, a female um, kind of character that's being analyzed. Um, and like, for example, Laura Mulvey will talk about the, the male gaze and like the female body as spectacle. And then you'll have another theorist that'll come in to try to see how the idea of masculinity could fit into the same kind of theory. So with Steve Neal, who wrote about masculinity as spectacle, it's a direct response to someone like Laura Mulvey. Um, and Steve Neal is trying to position men in the conversation about gazing at screen on screens and like, how do we look at men? How do we look at these visual cinematic subjects? Um, so he talks about a lot of great examples from like the 70s and 80s, like John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever, um, and like tries to encourage male viewers to understand where that identification is taking place with these characters that are like really toxic and terrible. Um, and like, she, she, like he brings up this idea of narcissism that's really promoted. Um, 
And I think that's like, it's like, a, it's an important dichotomy. So like a lot of theory arises from this back and forth, you know, like what about like men in this context? And it really helps build up something from there. And so I think it also underlies the important idea of femininity as like a looming threat to masculinity. Um, and I think what we're going to try to talk about a bit is how like a healthy masculinity should does not fear the feminine, right? It, it doesn't need to like be feminine necessarily, but it shouldn't fear it and reject it. On that note, we're going to talk a little bit <laughs> about how we can <laughs> leave some of these toxic masculine traits. What an that. introduction. I know. <laughs> that was sorry. amazing. This was long, but it's important. And I think like for me, like it was so hard to kind of like pin this down when I was doing my original research. So um, but let's let's move into some more fun stuff. Um, so, for example, I shared two clips with our lovely co-host and guest today, including the Gillette uh, razor commercial in 2019 um, that promoted sort of like what a man can be and the Charlie XCX music video for boys. So if we want to talk a little bit about the Gillette commercial as like a kind of like a stepping stone into this world of modern masculinity, what did you two think? for our viewers right this is the commercial that came out where it shows all the guys and it has like the shot of all of the dads by their grills saying boys will be boys will be boys you know mm -hmm. that was all over facebook and was everywhere and i should i guess i should first say i really like this video like i like a lot of the things that the video does but i want to acknowledge that the fact that it exists in the way that it is in and of itself kind of presents some problems because this is like a a company kind of capitalizing on a social movement, which like, like no matter what they do in certain cases, right? It's gonna be difficult and there's gonna be criticism. Um, Always kind of gross. Yeah, well, I just, it's like, there's, it's still a company, right? This wasn't a, a PSA or anything. It was still a company that was trying to say like, look, we, we also care about the Me Too movement too. Like we're gonna make a whole commercial about it. But, you know, and then they made a lot of money off of it because everybody shared it, right? When you share something controversial. So there's like that to think of that is complicated whenever a celebrity figure or a company capitalizes, right? Capitalism on um, a social trend, right? Because yeah. we shouldn't think about media as being most of the time, media is not moral, media is just trendy, right? And so that there's just like, anyway, that I think of, but I do think that was clever <laughs> and I think that a lot, it does a lot of good. Yeah. Um, especially I, I wrote this down, the final statement that they make where they say it shows, right. Cause it's all about these like dads that go and break up like fights or teach their kids to do good things. And the very end, it shows shots of, of the kids. And it says the boys watching today are the men of the future or the mm -hmm. men of tomorrow or something like right. that. And I think that, statement and that in and of itself is really powerful because the commercial is acknowledging that what people boys see on screen or people see on screen influences what's going to happen later definitely what, what are they going to do to each, how are they going to treat each other right if they see men on the screen getting away with certain things boys and girls are going to grow up assuming that that type of you know forceful masculinity is acceptable did you know? I'm going to ask now. So I, when I was looking this up again and trying to find it, I found out that someone, like some organization for like men's rights made a response video. Where, oh, no way. Yeah. So it's like a very professional video with like lots of stock footage. And it talks about what men do for us. 
And it talks about, for example, like the fact, like it brings up a lot of statistics about how men are more likely to be injured on the, in the workplace. Men are more <laughs> likely to like, to be like susceptible to like suicide and like all these statistics that are obviously super relevant, but this video positions it like it's something completely unrelated to the Gillette video when like, these are all part of the same issue. Yeah. Um, I think there's this like weird, like, opposition of ideas that like oh like we like we don't need to like tell men like to change like why are we criticizing men when they do so much and I'm like no but these kinds of videos like the Gillette commercial are also saying that a lot of things that happen to men shouldn't be happening to men um, oh yeah it's an interesting video but I think I somebody so I I, I work in marketing and, and I have a history of working in marketing and somebody in that boardroom was like what if we make a commercial and we show all these horrible things that men doing and the dads come and stop it. And it's Gillette, it's, it's the best a man can be, right? Mm -hmm. And you know that was like a very successful marketing thing because it got a lot of attention. So it, it's just, it's, it, this is like George Bush going to American Idol to make a political statement. Oh like it's God. not, it's, <laughs> it's not your space to do that, right? And, and so we just have to be, we have to, have to take with that caveat, but the fact that it's a, big commercial with a good budget that shows you know boys being boys and other boys stepping in to say hey we don't treat each other like that we don't do that you know and and in in, in, a, in a casual way of you know hey don't don't cat call that girl like that it's not cool that's not cool I, I think that's powerful I think because people watching it will then go like oh that's right I shouldn't do that right and sometimes it takes seeing it on screen you know, from mm -hmm. someone that you trust uh, to help you understand that. And so I think that's a really cool thing. I agree. And I think, you know, the commercial format is accessible. Like a oh, yeah. lot of, a lot of films, a lot of TV shows like deal with questions of masculinity, but like a short form commercial that like really stirred up conversation and like a lot of people were able to see it, which uh, makes a huge difference. I was going to say like, what was interesting was precisely for a lot of the stuff that you were pointing out, Colton, in terms of it being like a, a commercial endeavor and probably somewhat cynical in its conception. I think that's part of why I struggled with it a little bit was because mm -hmm. like, it's not at all to say that I don't think that there is uh, a certain degree of value or that it doesn't have its place in a way, but I was, I don't know. I did definitely struggle with that aspect. And I think what exacerbated that was like, it was talking at the end, you said the quote, I can't remember exactly how they phrase it, but something like uh, the best that men can be. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's, that's like Gillette's, motto right? right the best a man can get or something and i think and, they subtly changed it and it was just it was interesting because i was like yes but while watching it i still felt like this notion of like what the best a man can be is was still very tied to kind of cisgender and heterosexual notions of masculinity um and in that sense yeah. I actually i think that's a little bit why and that's again that's not to say that like what the commercial is trying to do wasn't valuable and important but i think that's actually a little bit why of the two videos that you shared with us, Julia, the one that I found more uh, compelling was the Charlie XCX um, boys video, just because, I mean, I don't know that I'm kind of curious what, what you two thought of that, but there was, it definitely felt like uh, in some ways a slightly more expansive understanding of what masculinity is, if that makes sense. Totally. Well, you know, I think that's like one of the things we're talking about today, right? Is like the Gillette is like calling out dismantling of the toxic present or like the toxic behaviors we see and then the Charlie XCX is trying to like open up like to a future potential. So I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it. Did you 
So for people who might not know, Charlie XCX is a very famous pop recording artist um, with lots of wonderful mu music videos. And her song Boys was a music video where a lot of famous um, like pop culture figures and musicians come in and engage in this like visual spectacle of masculinity, but like by defying it with lots of recurring feminine tropes of a lot of pink decor as a lot of softer actions. It's just kind of blending a lot of lines of gender and like portraying these men as just like enjoying themselves and having a good time. And the whole song is about how Charlie XCX like loves boys. Like she just thinks they're she great. She can't stop thinking about them. Exactly. So can I just say I'm so glad you explained what the lyrics were because I I have this ongoing problem with music that like I I can enjoy it but I I can almost never <laughs> understand what the lyrics are like even if I can understand like some phrases in it I can't my brain it is such this is why I could never like study music is because I can't put it together and be like oh yes this is this connects to that and this is what the artist is trying to say <laughs> so I was watching it and all I was getting was like oh this is a nice song don't know what it's about <laughs> The visuals are great. I'm loving that. Did you, but did you know that it was about boys? Like, I think that was the one. I got that, but only because from the Good. title, Colton. Yeah. <laughs> not the, not, not, not all the boys in it. <laughs> but the speaking of the visuals, yeah, I kind of to what you're saying, Julie, it just felt like a, for lack of a better word, like a very utopian view of what masculine, masculinity can be in terms <laughs> of, yeah, I don't know. It just, it, it just felt like in some ways the video was saying like, wouldn't this be nice if we could one day get to this point? And in some ways, maybe maybe we kind of are, and that's something we can talk a little bit about later in the episode. But it, I, I found it quite effective in that sense. Um, and maybe, again, the music video is a valuable sort of format to package that because it's yes. shorter, and if a music video is successful, it can be really successful and really widely seen. I don't know, what do you think, Colton? Uh, I agree. I think that the music video space, j just like a commercial, right? It's something you can share that people can watch mm -hmm. that condenses like a narrative into one place. I <laughs> I was thinking this as I was watching it that I'd never thought I would use the word sexy and chainsaw in the same sentence. <laughs> I was like, oh, 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 okay. <laughs> like, um, But I do think that's interesting because there's a comment where somebody says uh, on YouTube, they said, this is un this is so unlike the male gaze, right? Male gaze is very um, specific on gendering women, but then also photographing them in a very erotic way. Like we see that a lot in, in movies throughout Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. As Julie was mentioning. And the guy was talking about how this is very different. And I think it's different because we don't have like fractured shots that show explicit parts of the male very often. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, it's maybe not erotic. There's still a little bit of like sensuousness, like the men are attractive and they show that, but they don't show it like through too much sexualization of them, which I think is good because it shows like the, I'm thinking of like the rose scene, right? Yeah. It, it adds in a level of femininity to it that shows one, it's okay for these pop figures to have feminine things, you know, the color pink soft things to hang out with the guys but i also think that it, it it plays on the trope of displaying bodies as spectacle because even if it's not super sexualized like you have this like the in a white shirt guy with like pouring water over himself that i think is like nodding a little bit too yeah of course well, of yeah tropes. there's also the scene where like uh the artist charlie poof is like in front of the car like the car wash kind of scene which yep. is like 
yep such a mythic like embodiment of like female sexuality in terms of like male gazing so I think there's absolutely a play on that um but I think you know it's like softened it's like it's like it's just like it's less aggressive it's less like explicitly sexual and it's kind of playing on this idea that like men can just be soft like and that's also attractive and that's not any less masculine right it's like masculinity can be this like changeable malleable thing um and it's just as great in terms of like media representation oh, okay so i i also think that's interesting because sometimes media does its job by being i don't want to say satirical this is not super satirical but kind of satirical kind of ironic because if if they pushed that and if the whole thing was like really sexualized representations of men I think that men watching that would be, that's so bad. How, you know, how can they do that? Right. Yeah, of course. And and they would go, oh yeah, it's bad to, to only sexualize body figures on screen. Right. Yeah. And they'd go, oh, you know, totally. so I think and that's, that's super like, and that's been done. Right. And I think oh, yeah. like, the intention of this was to maybe push past that and to be like, yep. you know, it's one thing to call out a behavior and show like what it feels like to be portrayed this way, but it's another to you know, consider like a new way that this can function, right? Because like in the end, like, and this is a problem across media in general when it comes to masculinity, like for example, like the revenge narrative is a huge like yep. feminist, like quote unquote um, genre because it shows like women reclaiming their power and punishing men. And while like that has its merits in certain contexts, like I don't think that's really advancing um, where we're going in terms of our like gendered understanding of screen depictions, right? It makes me think about something you talked about earlier with like some of the limitations with how second wave feminism conceived of gender and specifically like femininity and masculinity, particularly in terms of binaries. And like one of the things that um, at least when I was an undergrad that came up not infrequently was the fact that like what often happened is like rather than breaking these binaries or breaking any sort of kind of gendered hierarchy, instead it was often reversals. Like instead it was like, I, I don't know, this is just a problem that kind of was addressed a lot, that, like, for example, in second wave feminism, as you mentioned, like, the revenge narrative, that in some ways, what that is, isn't so much challenging um, sort of gendered constructs or gendered hierarchies, but instead adopting a masculine narrative, but often with a female protagonist, uh, for instance. And yeah. so, I don't know, I just think that's really interesting, because, again, as you said, like, with something like this video, there's maybe a push to imagine a totally new way of um, visualizing this stuff in media, which I guess leads us really nicely into the kind of the bulk of the end of the episode, which is discussing these various ways in which media can kind of both dismantle toxic masculinity, but also hopefully construct more positive, kind of healthy, productive images of masculinity going forward. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the key things that like, when we're talking about this, like kind of parody role reversal, like one of the things I think has been an expansion on this in the past kind of like decade or two has been this ability in media and especially in film to point out flaws of toxic masculinity. Um, Cause I think that's the first step, right? And I think like we've had this for a while in a sense, like a lot of female directors have taken on this like mantle and this task and have done it so incredibly well. For example, uh, American Psycho, is like a depiction by a female director of like an unbelievably uh, toxic male, like just the Horrible. absolute parody <laughs> of the toxic male. Like he's, he's like a complete sociopath. 
Um, and it was so effective in kind of like showing like the limits of toxic masculinity, but it wasn't, I mean, it did backfire because some people still worship that character. Um, but you know, that's they, like- They put it of, up on a pedestal. Like that's, yes. the, oh yeah, that's what I need to, you know, it's like exactly watching it, Breaking Bad. It's just bad. And it's peak parody, right? But then- Wait, you know, wait, are you telling me Patrick Bateman is an aspirational? <laughs> So are you Sebastian telling just took murdering? his poster off the wall. <laughs> are you telling me I shouldn't be murdering people with chainsaws? I am shocked right now. Oh my God. I'll send you a good number for a therapist after this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, see, but it is like kind of common in popular fiction. But I think one of the important uh, next steps of that, right, is that it, it shouldn't just be like female filmmakers jobs to do this because. Oh, yeah it can come off like preachy to like audiences that are that we're trying to like affect right when it isn't but for example recently one of my favorite films that came out recently was Roma directed by Alfonso Cuaron love because Roma. I think Alfon I think Alfonso Cuaron while the movie has its flaws right obviously I think he does an incredible job at being critical of male characters in a way that I haven't really seen done that much before and I think that like th there's like a good move forward of like male identifying directors in terms of representing better female characters, but in terms of like actually like pointing out some of the issues with our representations of masculinity, it's less common. So for example, right, he has absent characters, like absent fathers, and like it's pointed out as like a major flaw in the narrative, almost uh, like a huge heartache for everyone involved. Um, so like the fathers are constantly just like leaving uh, women behind with like their children. Yep. Um, and then there's also this huge spectacle of masculinity that's done when Cleo's like main partner like does this like completely like parodied martial arts performance naked with a shower curtain rod. And it's like, she's like clearly uncomfortable but it's pointing out this like parody of masculinity. Like he thinks this is like the be all end all of like virility, right? Like right after they have sex. Um, and I just thought that was such a, a an interesting, like clever way of like parodying that, like in a in a in a very subtle way. Um, but you know, I think it's important that we have like directors willing to like kind of call out these weird behaviors and show that they're not normal and that they are like detrimental to all characters involved. Um, so I think you know, calling out these tropes is important, and like calling out things like male stoicism is important and like not just through like a manic pixie dream girl character like that's a shortcut okay when like there's a manic yeah. dream girl character that shows up and like helps him express his emotions that's not actually progress i think progress is showing like personal individual growth of a character out of like a stoicism absolutely i just wanted to quickly signal two other male identifying directors who i feel like are do interesting work in this area in the sense I think like both of their filmographies are kind of all about masculinity and specifically toxic masculinity and the first one I was going to say was David Fincher which I think is a really interesting yes. parallel to American Psycho because I feel like a lot of Fincher's work and especially the two I'm thinking of are Fight Club and The Social Network are about toxic masculinity and about yep. the yep. ways in which men have or at least some men can have a really hard time relating to each other in context beyond violence and antagonism and yet like what I think is interesting is that like Fincher's work tends to be so nihilistic that like I don't it, I feel like I don't it's been a while since I've seen any of those films but I feel like it doesn't usually point to like where a more healthy version of masculinity can be and so I think it's telling us that like at least in my personal experience a lot of people who also identify as men watch those films and don't see it as deconstructive but instead like this is I've especially noted with the social network where like there were a bunch of like 
econ majors in my and my undergrad who like saw that film and didn't see it as being about how like the relationship between Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Safran is like yeah. is deeply uncomfortable. And the things it's that's partially on Fincher. Like I don't personally like I I think Fincher is I don't love him as a director. I think he's kind of overrated and I don't think he always navigates this the most smoothly mm-hmm. thing, but I do think it's really telling that like they watched that and like Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Savarin were aspirational for them. Um, and I guess on the flip side of that, like the other director I wanted to point to is Taika Waititi, who I like, I think his entire filmography is, is like, there's a really, like if you look at it, there's a common theme of like his protagonists who are pretty much always, you know, either young men or, you know, or boys or whatever, and all of them having false or kind of deeply toxic conceptions of their own masculinity. And then throughout the course of the film, kind of evolving to a better, healthier place. But like, particularly, they tend to evolve to that place via opening up with other men and via forming healthier relationships with other men. Like the, the some of the examples I'm thinking of, like Hunt for the Wilder People, which if you haven't seen it, is... Your, your day will be sunshine and roses after this one the, the the most charming films ever but like okay. the whole thing of the whole thing about that film is that like ricky baker has all these cons- and i should note that there's ricky a <laughs> no child left behind oh god that movie's so good i'm gonna have to like maybe watch it after this it's such a good movie but anyways we, like my... we should break for 10 minutes <laughs> my, my friend group said that we uh we can't watch that movie for a while because we watched it so much <laughs> like i can't everybody knew it. like have, have you seen hunt for the world well let's let's watch it right now it's it's so great but anyways the point i was going to quickly make was that like um there's definitely there's also i should say like there's a different racial component as well because ricky is yeah. maori taika Waititi is maori and so like it's not just masculinity but like specifically he has a he has internalized some societal expectations and deeply damaging societal expectations of what Maori men should be like. And then over the course of the film, through his relationship with his sort of nominal father figure, Hector, they both kind of improve in that regard. And like, I also, the other character I wanted to, to signal, because I think it's it's a really kind of fascinating, subtle critique is Korg in Thor Ragnarok. Yes. <laughs> if you listen to my last episode, you know how much I love Thor Ragnarok. But what I love about that is that uh, what TD has said that like he modeled the voice of Korg after Maori bouncers and like he was talking about this whole thing that like again people have these deeply racist assumptions about like what Maori men should be like yeah. and then you you talk to like these super big muscular guys and they're like incredibly pleasant and caring yeah. and supportive and I just I don't know something, I thought something about that was really lovely um, and I kind of unexpected for that that movie so I just I want to kind of point to that work because I think that's an example of a filmmaker who is taking this seriously, even if through the lens of comedy and actually pointing to ways in which men can, can, can develop a better masculinity, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. I love that. I love those two. Um, uh, I love those two examples. And you know, one thing that it gets me thinking about a bit too is like Taika Waititi also does such a great job at elevating his female characters to kind of like engage with these issues of masculinity. Like they're all wonderful and like contribute so much in the comedy, in the narrative. And you know, that's something David Fincher does not do as much, right? And that's, I think maybe part of where the flaws like arise. Like The Social Network is undeniably like a fantastic movie, but the female characters are all props. They're all like completely disposable. And like, it's really sad. 
to watch that and think what a great movie and then to see that like that issue is like not fully addressed or like fully reckoned with like uh i think rashida jones plays like the assistant to like the lawyer that's like defending Mark yeah and like she's like such an amazing actress and she's so underutilized and she gets like one like like kind of like bad line about just like making the right decision at the end but like and you know that makes a huge difference in how we understand these male relationships and like how we understand this masculinity which is again why i love taika waititi he's amazing and we love him and yes i think the um the 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 rashida joan thing is funny too because like her one interaction is he tries to like ask her out kind of like like not like not really but kind of so and like that's when she gets the chance to do it and it's all while mark zuckerberg's character is refreshing his page trying to get the woman that left him to submit to his friend request like mm-hmm. over and over well and you know also wait now that we're on the topic of taika i'm okay look i'm not the biggest fan of scarlett johansson but in jojo rabbit the monologue about being both mother and father is is fantastic and really again right homes in these questions why tt's work is just so I love that we all like come in here and we're just embracing it because he really is. I don't know. I, I I hope he doesn't ever let us down because he is just he's he's a fantastic filmmaker. Um, but I wanted to transition us a little bit to another topic that I know that you want to address, Julia and Colton, which was like altered expectations for masculine bodies, which I'm really curious about because like the two that I think you pointed to were John Krasinski and Chris Pratt. Mm-hmm whose work I'm not super familiar with. Like I was thinking about this and I was like, I think the only film I know I've seen John Krasinski in is A Quiet Place. And it's because he directed it. Oh my so, God. I'm sure I've seen him in other stuff, but I just don't know. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what you have to, what you both have to say about this. Yeah, so I mean, we're still kind of, we're talking about th- this, this portion relates to like bad things that media does for masculinity. And so- with the case of John Krasinski and Chris Pratt, they were both famous before they became super famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Krasinski in The Office, right? Um, and then also Chris Pratt was in uh, Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. But their body types are very different. And so Julian, I've talked about this before, they had like a whole glow up phase where they became you know, super muscular, super attractive, all these conventional masculine things Mm -hmm. um when chris pratt first tried out for gardens of the galaxy one like back in like eight years ago now um the director really liked him and and initially he was like if you want to be in this you got to lose some weight but you were so good that i would just take you as is right Mm -hmm. because he was in parks and rec and he played like a large character right yeah and he was kind of a doofus but he was also like big like Mm-hmm. overweight big and to get into gardens of the galaxy he lost like 70 pounds and became super muscular and the introduction to that like when the world first saw him that way was the guardians of the galaxy like hose you down in the prison scene where he's you know ripped with abs and mm-hmm. massive forms like you can't normally get um <laughs> and so and th- then he becomes super famous right Totally. And then the same thing with John Krasinski in the office, he, like he's good looking and he's got like a good shape and everything, but, but he becomes really muscular and big. And then he's in like the, uh, uh, 13 hours, the Benghazi movie right. He's in the one opposite, uh, Steve Carell, where he plays like this big macho guy that looks down on Steve Carell. And then he's in, Jack um, Ryan. yeah, Jack Ryan, like he, 
he became, and we know him from those ones, he became more famous. And in tandem with that, both of these cases, like they became really quote unquote masculine body yeah. forms. And so it's just something to think about. I remember watching um, the movie, Remember the Titans when I was a kid, <laughs> and seeing like one of the, which also brings up a lot of interesting questions about masculinity and, and all sorts of things. But one of the scenes where they're like singing in the um, locker room and uh, they're like all shirtless. And I remember when I was a kid going like, wow, they're, they're buff and thinking I'll look like that one day. And then getting to my twenties and being like, <laughs> I still don't look like that. So it's like it, so it, difficult it, to grow up with that. Yeah. It's unrealistic expectations of like what a man looks like. So absolutely still and negative, you know, but something to think about. And it like, it's also really interesting how race plays into this conversation. Uh -huh. And like, I remember it was just like a few weeks ago, but I saw a video by Hassan Minaj where he was talking about how people like how men, white men who are not typically masculine will still find success oftentimes in like a Hollywood context, but often at times like Asian men and Asian American men will not be able to have that same kind of opportunity. Like he talks about how, for example, like Dax Shepard's career, like Dax Shepard is not like outstandingly like gorgeous or ripped or anything. He's a very yeah. average looking guy and he has like a long standing career and finds success and roles easily. And then Hassan Minaj talks about how like those kinds of opportunities are not afforded to him in the same way because he's not ripped. And like, you can see this in like, like he talks about how like you have to be like a Daniel Day Kim or like uh, a Kumail Nanjani who just like had his glow up as well, right? To find this like mainstream yep. success as an Asian American actor. And like, there's clearly a lot of like double standards there which exist, which are important to acknowledge. I'm not sure. I'm sorry, I'm just processing that because that was like a really interesting point. But like something I was thinking about is this sort of like cultural fervor that builds around um, movies like Black Panther or Crazy mm -hmm. Rich Asians or presumably mm -hmm. upcoming um, the, the Shang-Chi movie. And like the way in which because of what types of movies those are, you know, it's a superhero movie and then it's it's a romantic comedy where you're expected to have like the the very kind of virile masculine protagonist that in each of those cases, like they're seen as, you know, these, these scenes, kind of these cultural watershed moments when it comes to, to representation, but that representation is, I don't know, like mediated, I guess, through hyper-masculine forms in some way, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, I guess kind of transitioning to a topic that I know is very near and dear to Colton's heart. And I feel like kind of relates to John Krasinski because of, his role in The Quiet Place. Again, the only thing of his I think I've seen. Um, well, you've just seen The Office. Like you, no, I haven't seen, I haven't seen The Office. You haven't seen anything from The Office? No, I haven't seen The Office. Well, Me neither. I can't, I can't get through it. But but like, well, yeah, like you don't have to like see, when I say seen, like watch, like a watch through, but like you've seen an episode. No. Wow. Whoa. Sorry, Colton. Though I, that, that is kind of another, cause well, he was in The Office and then Pratt was in Parks and Rec, right? Yeah, Parks and Rec, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's another like interesting point that I was thinking about when you guys were talking about this is that like there's a there's this really toxic way in which we tie like the type of man you are in terms of personality and attitude with body in the sense body like shape. Mm -hmm. They were yeah, exactly. Like they they weren't asked to become these certain physical types of figures until they were playing a superhero and I don't know, like whatever Jack Ryan is spy. Yeah, like I don't, a, I don't like know what he is. Military, <laughs> yeah, military exactly. man, yeah. But this kind of, that, figure. Like, very much that sort of correlation there. It's like you have your glow up in relation to 
these these very specific expectations of the yeah. character you're playing which, uh, which i think is 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 part of the problem or the question right how are those related do they do they become famous because they took on very masculine forms or did they like did one cause the other it's just something to think about because mm -hmm. if we're teaching the world that if you want to be famous famous you have to become super muscular actiony well and then there's like this like it kind of leads into like this new wave of like modern masculinity where like yep. we're maybe shifting a bit from that because you know there's like a very famous meme that talks about how like in call me by your name we have like army hammer who's like nordic six foot tall like muscular and then we have like scrawny victorian boy <laughs> timothy chalamet and everybody decided to fall in love with timothy timothy chalamet um i do think the, the timothy chalamet worship is something that i find fascinating he's just he makes me wonder. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet is, is a beautiful man. He is a beautiful cool man. Guy. And there's also an amazing father figure in that movie. So <laughs> to touch on Colton's topic of choice. Yeah. So so when we were first constructing this, right, we were saying, well, we should talk about how, how media can dismantle toxic masculinity or do something positive, right? And one of the things that I brought up that is near and dear to me or that I think about a lot is examples of fatherhood. So a lot of movies that show positive fathers. Um, we talked about Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, another one came up as A Quiet Place. There are other ones I'm thinking like Train to Busan, oh, The yes. Host. They're just fantastic, right? And in a lot of these movies, we have fathers who start out in bad places who make like a big switch towards the end and the narrative rewards that. Right. So in A Quiet Place, he's very like non-affectionate with his daughter who there's like that tension there. Mm -hmm. And when he finally accepts that and says like, I love you and expresses what we would call a feminine thing, like mm -hmm. opens up, it's to save his kids. And it's, although he, spoiler alert, dies, it shows like a positive thing he's put in a good light. Totally. In Train to Busan, the dad is like very capitalistic, self-centered the entire time. And through the narrative learns to sacrifice for other people. Right. And, and, and the narrative shows like that's good. So all of these cases in which fathers start out with the negative toxic forms of masculinity, like being forceful, being cruel, being lazy, like all these things. And the way that the narrative shows the character arc is by them overcoming that and being a positive example, mm -hmm. um, I think is, is really powerful. So I think one way that, that one way that media can dismantle toxic masculinity is by showing positive representations or positive character arcs of father figures mm -hmm. so those are some good examples um and that is a great point um you know i think like these character arcs of evolution are super important in the shifting yep. of masculinity because like obviously like a lot of work needs to be done and like showing that evolution is also great and also not putting that evolution on the female character like as we mentioned before like a lot of these narratives have like a maternal character also present um in the lives of the children but like the 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 father figure needs to kind of reckon with himself like on his own you know um so i think that that's like that's an interesting healthy dynamic for that kind of evolution and the I narrative just, needs to reward that of course like like right if, if the story shows that the you know Lindsay ellis talks about this transformers is bad because sam is a horrible character but he always gets the girl he doesn't change anything no, whereas guardians of the galaxy star lord his flaws he doesn't always get the go right. So if the narrative rewards bad masculine behavior, bad fathers, then it's going to implicitly teach the audiences that it's okay and that that's how you win. And so we need a narrative that shows 
if you don't overcome this, you don't get the thing that the character's going for. And so I think that's a power of media for sure. Mm-hmm. I also feel like there's a component to this, which is like portraying men who are willing to learn and willing to grow. Like, again, I'm seeing it more, but like, I feel like that's something that I look back on older media and don't see as much, which is like, mm-hmm. I think part of the expectation, like one of the really toxic expectations of masculinity is that like men are always on top of things and that they're like in charge and in control and, and all this other sort of stuff. And I feel like part of the, one of the side effects of that is that like, there's this it creates this idea that like men don't have to ever question themselves question or ask for help yeah ask for help or like question how they relate interpersonally with others is the thing and like i feel like Uh since some of the examples that you're identifying again there's there's examples of characters who via their character arcs are are able to change because they're willing to acknowledge that like maybe i'm doing things wrong or like maybe i do have something to learn and i do have areas where i can grow which mm-hmm. I think is is really valuable. Like I, yeah, I, I think I was going to provide an example, but I, I don't, I know we're running a little bit long as it is. And I want to give Julia a chance to talk about um, kind of the way in which this relates to, to queer relationships and also like non-male identifying individuals. Because I think that's another Perfect. really important aspect of this. Thank you. My favorite topic to talk about at any time of day or night. Um, <laughs> So I am a huge proponent of the fact that um, by, well, obviously by normalizing like depictions of queerness and trans bodies and masculinity outside of the typical male identifying figure, like we're going to achieve like a new level of kind of expansion of masculinity. Like, I think not only will it help us dismantle like some of the toxic, um, you know, traits we're used to, it's also gonna help us just conceive of it in a different way. So like, you know, there's like typical examples that come up a lot of like Brokeback Mountain and Moonlight, which are two narratives where like very like kind of like hyper-masculine characters need to grapple with their queerness. And it's portrayed as something that's incompatible because right inherently these hyper-masculine figures are kind of seen as not being able to engage with like the feminine quote unquote, like love of men, right? Something that's typically associated with like women. Um, so it's just like these tensions are really interesting in these narratives and like these are obviously kind of high like higher bra movies or like you know more like you know more expensive movies Um, (laughs) which is obviously a little less accessible but like Moonlight finally got like recognition as best picture despite that whole mess up with La La Land uh, which is a bad depiction of masculinity by the way La La Land trash trash man um but Moonlight is really a great example because it talks about like this evolution of grappling with how you want to express yourself and your masculinity and specifically like in the context of black masculinity, which has its whole entire like subsets of issues and kind of characterizations that are really like pejorative in media. So that was like a really unique and wonderful um, expression of this. And then, you know, we have again, Alfonso Cuaron, I wrote my thesis on this full disclaimer, but in there's like kind of this idea that like homosociality and homosexuality are not that dissimilar and that they can really like be blended in a way that's that that shouldn't be feared and then you know we have also like a really important way of like showing these like this evolution of masculinity is by giving space to like trans male bodies because when you watch a narrative about like a, a trans male character you're learning about masculinity and the embodiment of masculinity through like the eyes of someone who is also grappling with this. 
um, in their identity. So like, for example, Tomboy by Celine Sciamma is like one of my favorite examples of this. We watched it in one of our classes recently as well. It's like, it's a fantastic work of exploration or, you know, Boys Don't Cry, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Like it's becoming more mainstream. Yep. And it's like, we're able to understand masculinity through these characters. And it's really helpful as a tool I find um, in media. And then of course, you know, we have the next, next step, which is masculinity outside of a male body, outside of a male experience, you know, like many individuals understand masculinity through themselves. Like I do, and I'm female identifying, like it's, it's, it's an important part of a lot of cultures. Um, and for example, like lesbian butch culture is like a huge segue into that for a lot of like normative media. So like we have Ruby Rose, who's like very butch and like often worshipped online for this kind of androgyny and who's present in Orange is the New Black and we have Lena Waithe who's in Master of None and now doing her own work and it's like really interesting to see this masculinity depicted in a different way and obviously like TikTok and other platforms like that are accessible to younger generations also grapple with this like there's a whole there was a whole trend on TikTok for a while about um women like girls trying to be uh, feminine in the boy in the way boys are like trying to find a femininity through a masculinity like and trying to to grapple with like gender identity in really new ways that are exciting and that speak to an erasure that's very often present and that's that's just like damaging yeah. something you brought up that i think is really interesting is like this question of accessibility because as you pointed out like moonlight and and even like um tomboy are really great examples of exploring this, this kind of subtopic that you've addressed, but they're also like they're small independent kind of art house films that like are just, I, I like I, I don't like that it's the case necessarily, but like some people just aren't going to be willing to sit down and watch them sadly, because like that's not, that's not what's like smashing, you know, numbers at the box office necessarily. But like, I, I don't remember where I heard the statistic, but I, I remember once hearing that like, there are only maybe two cases where you could normally posit that like an action film starred a character who was identified as gay. Uh, and I think it was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Alexander with Colin Farrell, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. it was kind of like the exceptions that prove the rule that like there just aren't gay or bisexual men who are, you know, are stars of blockbusters or certainly not like trans men, for instance. And mm -hmm again like this kind of ties into what we were talking about the Gillette commercial in terms of like because of how those sorts of movies are made that will only happen when a studio sees it as being innately profitable to actually try to address this different conception of masculinity and so I wonder if in that sense like in our current age of like social media and internet um you know, you know the kind of explosion of the internet I wonder if like places like TikTok for example are where are where that more exploratory sort of content is going to end up coming from increasingly. Um, that's a that's a good point, right? Because I really like what you were saying that companies make decisions based off of money, right? That's mm -hmm. but but with with you starting with YouTube and doing TikTok, doing you know Instagram, all these other things where now we have a really big participatory culture with film where anybody can make media right. that is seen it used to just be studios it now presents an opportunity for social change that anybody can do and and if you become famous on there it's easier than you don't have to go through the you know the hegemonic system of a studio to do it well i think that this marks the the end of our discussion 
um, which has been a wonderful discussion. I had so much fun with this. Um, this was really fantastic to talk about. And I hope, I hope that um, Sebastian, you've enjoyed being a guest on this and you feel enlightened. <laughs> I, I have, this is, this is fantastic. I, I'm like trying to think of like a good like closing statement because uh, we talked about so much, but I, I don't know, I'm the, the final point we made about like the potential of like online spaces and like TikTok, for example, and, like, I don't know, I'm, I don't want to be too utopian about it. I'm wary of like the way in which hegemonic structures can still shape those spaces, but I'm also, yeah. I don't know, like I, the, the sort of that trend you were talking about, which I hadn't known about because I'm not on TikTok of like, you know, people finding femininity through masculinity uh, in social media spaces. Like I, I don't know, I'm kind of inspired by that as like a, a really interesting path forward, if for nothing else. I'm so glad. And honestly, you know, my message is always that masculinity should be accessible to all and it's everywhere and it can change and is malleable. And it is a huge part of advancing feminism and advancing women's rights and men's emotional development. So I'll just uh, kind of a, a final note to uh, something that I had was that masculine traits, both physical and emotional can be positive. Mm -hmm. They can be constructive and uplifting. Yes. Um, and the way that media can do positive here is by finding a good balance between demonstrating those positively in a narrative in the sense, the good guys, the quote unquote, morally good men or people who demonstrate masculine traits need to win more and the bad guys need to stop being narratively praised for being toxic masculine forms. Well, thank you all for listening. And on the topic of masculinity and masculine vampires and potentially one of our favorite movies as a graduate cohort, let's talk about Twilight and let's talk about Kevin. We need to talk about Kevin. Hello. Hey, Kevin, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, you got Colton here, and I've I have uh, Sebastian and Julia on the line. We just wanted to to call and you know say hello this fine Saturday morning. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hi, Kevin. Um, Julia speaking. I have to talk to you about something kind of serious. Oh, okay. All right. So I have heard through you know some people who know some people who might be connected that word is on the street that you have actually seen twilight and not told us um I, julia I, I don't know who your sources are but, uh, <laughs> let me let me put your mind at ease and uh, give you give you the info right from the source i mm. i have not seen twilight i don't know where these rumors are coming from but uh, I, I can confirm that they're false. <laughs> Interesting. So you have no comments to make about Michael Sheen's performance in any of the Twilight movies. I was going to say, Kevin, this isn't putting our minds at ease. Last time I asked you to watch it, I'm... He was, he was adamant about... Uh, I'm upset about this. <laughs> well, um, I will take your word for it this week. But all I'm saying is if I find out that you have lied to me, I will be deeply offended. Yeah, it's funny. I, I keep, like, finding myself in, in situations where, like, like, I almost watch Twilight. Like, it almost happens, but then something what, always... What gets in the way? <laughs> you know, life, man. It just, <laughs> like, it just happens. Like, I want to I be in that room where it's Kevin and there are two choices. Like, someone walks out and is like, okay, we could watch Twilight or... And, like, what's the or? 
Like, or we could watch <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> I don't know, I'm trying to think of like. Okay, what watch. if I told you, Kevin, I know a lot of your interest is in, you know, warfare depictions in movies. What if I told you one of the characters has a war narrative built into their background? Oh, man, no, I'm going to, like, have to study it now. I'm going to have to watch it for class. And <laughs> there's the battle scene. There's the battle scene in, in, in the, 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 the one, of, one of the last ones. You could I was going to say, Kevin, like, if you get to the end of the series you get a peak action scene that is it's a great big battle i think you'd love it i'm sure you could write a whole essay about it um oh, better than really, 1917 yeah no absolutely i mean i think we right now are providing you fuel for your dissertation so i i don't see why you would turn this down <laughs> I'm, I'm sure like the entire cohort would just be like elated if i wrote about twilight in my dissertation we're gonna <laughs> like film school was worth it <laughs> i think i think kevin we're gonna like work with the professors when we're all finally in person at some point and talk about like this mandatory conference that that everyone has to go to and send out the email and have you show up and we're all going to be in the auditorium and instead of having anything it's just going to be twilight and the doors are going to be locked I think that's what we're gonna do. It's, it's gonna be like that scene from A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Yes. Well, Kevin, thank you so much again for your time and your presumed honesty. Um, <laughs> we will we will check in again with you in a few weeks. All right, sounds good. Thanks for calling. All right, bye, Kevin. Bye, bye Kevin. Kevin. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us. A cool update, we are now on Apple Podcasts. So if you like the show, go give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps us out. Media Literate is a collaborative podcast produced by Colton Elsey, Sebastian Wurzreiner, Laura Broman, Kim Henry, and Julia Rose Camus. Thanks again to this week's hosts, Julia, Sebastian, and Colton. Julia also edited this week's episode. Our theme music is Soft Feeling by Chiel, and our logo was created by Julia. Gosh, is there anything she can't do?